They say an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, yet it's not usually obvious in advance exactly which patients will benefit from targeted proactive interventions. Payers and at-risk providers have long used predictive modeling to try to figure out where to act, but big success stories are rare. New AI approaches should be a game changer, however, especially if applied to the right data sets and coupled with effective follow-through. Today's guest, Andrew I, is CEO and co-founder of Closed Loop, which is using AI to predict health events like hospital readmissions and appointment no-shows. Hi, everyone. I'm David Williams, president of strategy consulting firm Health Business Group and host of the Health Biz Podcast, a weekly show where I interview top healthcare leaders about their lives and careers. Please leave a comment, subscribe, or leave a rating or review. Andrew, welcome to the Health Biz Podcast. Hey, David. Thanks for having me. Great to see you. Andrew, you've been uh, doing a lot of really interesting stuff at Closed Loop, but also a lot of interesting stuff before that. So I just want to explore that uh, a little bit to understand your background. Uh, maybe starting with your your childhood, uh, any notable events in childhood or any childhood influences that have stuck with you over time? Oh, boy. There's quite a few stories I won't share with you today. But if you do some digging, you might you might find some uh, some horror stories. I, I was... Uh probably a little difficult for my mom to raise. Um, but in terms of influences, I, I'd say uh, my mom was my biggest influence. Uh, you know, single mother, public school teacher, um, went back to school after raising my brother and I. So I got the distinct honor of watching her graduate and walk across the stage. Um, you know, she really instilled in my brother and I kind of a, a work ethic, uh, as well as kind of a, a, a real focus on education. Um, so she, she used to tell us, uh, you can be anything you want to be in life, as long as you get a college degree. I said, uh, well, that's great, mom. But what if I want to be a trash man? She said, you'll be the smartest man on the trash truck. Yeah. Uh, so we, we were really lucky to have our mom kind of bring us up right. That's excellent. You know, if I look at your, your background and a lot of the entrepreneurs that I speak with, they probably weren't the easiest in school. And so I know if your mom had probably a classroom of people like you, she probably wouldn't have been able to manage too long. And uh, yet at the end of the day, if we didn't have a few like that sprinkled about, we wouldn't have the kind of dynamic economy that we, uh, that we do have. So when you, uh, when, you, when you got on to, you do have a college degree. So uh, <laughs> did you do that just because your mother said you had to or, uh, or what were you thinking at the time? Well, there wasn't a choice in our in our household. I was going to college whether I liked it or not. Uh, but yes, I'm a I'm a proud Hokie. Uh, went to Virginia Tech. Uh, did my undergrad and in, in kind of a, a business slash uh, technology background. Um, so came out of school as a software engineer, um, but also had kind of a, a basic business education as well. Um, so you know that that was kind of my my route. I was uh, lucky to be at a school. It was a lot of fun and and uh, had a lot of school pride, uh, but. That was my journey as far as college was concerned. Got you. So I saw early on you worked at, I think, a place called I2, and then you blasted off to NASA? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, I2 Technologies, it's funny now we talk about artificial intelligence and machine learning. You know, I2 was an algorithms company in the supply chain optimization business. Uh, you know, they were trying to figure out how to load packages onto, uh, onto trucks to get the best gas mileage out of them. We didn't call it AI or machine learning back then, but um, similar technology. And actually met my co-founder there. Uh, Dave DiCaprio, uh, almost 20 years ago uh, at I2 Technologies. Then, yes, you're right. Spent a little time at uh, NASA working on Earth science satellites uh, and then, you know, ended up starting my own uh, businesses thereafter. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned um, meeting a co-founder at your first job. It, that first job could be so important. And I see it. Uh, I have my own kids are you know, recent college graduates, a couple of them. 
And uh, I remember back, you know, people that I met, my first job, I still work with today, uh, 30 years uh, later. It's a really formative time. And if you can find the right person, uh, it is really worth a lot. You know, I was, I was very fortunate. Our, uh, our campus uh, at I2 was uh, about a block and a half away from MIT. So when I first got there, I thought, boy, they made a big mistake. I must be the dumbest guy here. <laughs> um, you know, I worked with all MIT grads, uh, you know, at the beginning of the Internet. Uh, and so there were a lot of smart young people working there that have all gone on to be CTOs and CEOs. Uh, so, yes, you're right. Quite formative. And I, I was very fortunate to have that first experience. Now, you mentioned going in and founding a couple of companies. And I saw two companies that you, I think, were, were involved in founding, Siphon and Boxer, which then both were acquired by uh, larger organizations that you spent some time with as well. What was that? What was that process like? Yeah. So, you know, the first company I kind of uh, fell into, I had a, a friend who had kind of encouraged me to leave my day job and start a business with him. Uh, that was in the information security space, Siphon, as you mentioned. Um, so that was a bootstrapped company. We started it from nothing and uh, grew it to number 16 on the Inc. 500 list. Um, you know, had a bunch of success there. Uh, ultimately sold that to Acuvant, which is now Optiv, the largest information security reseller in the country. Um, so really fortunate to grow that business. Um, you know, the second one, Boxer, uh, was a consumer mobile uh, business. So that was Outlook for your smartphone before there was Outlook for your smartphone. Um, that was the first venture-backed business uh, that I had started. So uh, went out to Silicon Valley, you know, went down Sand Hill Road uh, doing the rounds and, and uh, pitching the idea uh, and ultimately built one of the first uh, third-party mobile applications, third-party mobile email applications for iPhones and Android, uh, ended up selling that to VMware. So uh, yeah, that was kind of the first journey, information security, then consumer mobile email. And of course, after you do those two things, what else would you do but start a yeah. health IT company, right? Of course, I was going to say, well, so, I mean, it's obvious, right? So you, if you start the first third-party app, it's not like you're going to start the third first-party app. So that's, you know, <laughs> so where else do you go other than healthcare? Usually people go into healthcare because they don't know what they're doing and they think it's going to be easy. A lot of times you have people from a technology field and they say, you know, we solved this, that, and the other, you know, moving boxes around, et cetera. How hard could it be to go and fix everything in healthcare, which is so broken? Were you one of those or were you a little a little more eyes wide open going into it? You know, I'd like to think I was eyes wide open, but maybe kicking and screaming. Uh, you know, people always ask me, how did I end up in healthcare? Uh, and the short version is my co-founder made me do it. Um, yeah. You know, Dave DiCaprio had uh, worked on the Human Genome Project at the MIT Broad Institute under Eric Lander, um, spent some time in the payer market doing predictive analytics and machine learning. Um, and so Dave and I uh, had wanted to start a project together. Uh, you know, after I was leaving VMware. And originally we were working on something completely different. We, we bought the first two Microsoft HoloLenses in Austin and we were going to build, you know, augmented reality applications because uh, we thought that might be the next big platform. Yeah. Uh, but luckily about three months into that project, Dave said, hey, actually, Andrew, I think this stuff we're working with in, in kind of deep learning and machine learning could be really applicable in the field I came from, uh, healthcare. And I said, boy, that's a terrible idea. I really don't want to do that. I heard that's a really hard market. Yeah. Um, but Dave roped me in. Uh, I spent about a month getting uh, kind of acquainted with the, the industry and got really excited about value-based care in particular. Um, you know, so to me, it felt like a, a real opportunity with a major market shift and a lot of new entrants who might be um, receptive to new technologies and maybe not stuck in their ways. Uh, and so that was kind of where we started, uh, applying machine learning and artificial intelligence first in the value-based care segment. Um, so yeah, what was not my first choice, was not excited to enter the industry, um, but, you know, after having some personal experiences with my own daughter getting sick, 
um, I caught the bug, right? And, and got really excited about, uh, you know, working on mobile email that, you know, at the end of the day, we were saving white collar workers five seconds a day uh, by swiping on their emails. Working in healthcare, you know, you're applying the most influential technology of our lifetimes, uh, you know, artificial intelligence to improving health and saving lives. It's pretty easy to get excited about that. Sounds good. Well, I don't need machine learning to see that pattern. I've got enough examples of my uh, podcast of people who say, how do they get into healthcare? And uh, you had sounds like two reasons of, you know, a, uh, a co-founder and then a personal experience. The personal experience is the usual reason for it. Um, yeah. So what was the, why was there a need? You mentioned value-based care in particular, but once you came to see uh, that healthcare made sense, I mean, why, why is that a place that has a real need for what you're doing? Yeah, you know, for us, when we were starting, the reason we went after value-based care and our, uh, accountable care organizations uh, in particular, at the time, you know, we had a lot of investors, a lot of people saying, like, this is the dumbest place you could start. Um, you know, if you've seen one ACO, you've seen one ACO. Six years ago, you know, only one in three ACOs was actually making money or, or succeeding in those value-based care contracts. And so, you know, we had a lot of pushback that maybe this wasn't the right place to start. But our thought was, this is the part of the pie that's growing. Uh, you know, we're going to see more and more dollars shifted to value-based care. Um, and these are early adopters. These are folks who, by definition, are trying new things. Um, and so we saw a greenfield opportunity in value-based care. The real problem to work on, you know, if you want to succeed in value-based care, if you're a risk taker, you know, whether that's a, a self-insured employer, a payer, uh, or, you know, a value-based care provider, really, you know, there's lots of games you can play. Um, you can kind of look at kind of... Uh, trying to get coding correct. You can look at how you design your network and all of those things um, can really have a benefit in building a good business. But at the end of the day, what the federal government needs us to do, we need to spend less money and get better results. If you really want to succeed in value-based care, you've got to get better results with fewer dollars. That's what we're all after is kind of bringing down the total cost of care and improving health. And so to do that, I always tell people there's really two fundamental things you've got to be able to do. You've got to be able to predict the future. You got to see the bad thing that's going to happen before it happens. And you've got to be able to change it. You've got to have programs and interventions that actually are successful in reducing that total cost of care. And so, you know, if we talk about just pop health and if we talk about just kind of the, the core tenets of value-based care as it, as it pertains to driving down total cost of care, those are a lot of pop health use cases that you hear about. Avoidable hospitalizations, readmissions, chronic disease onset and progression, et cetera. Um, so targeting those programs, predicting the future using machine learning and AI uh, was where we saw the first market opportunity. And, and we've had a lot of success there. Why do you call it closed loop? Yeah, you know, it was interesting. I, I, I have a history of being pretty terrible at naming companies, actually. Uh, okay. But cl <laughs> closed loop, uh, we had looked at a couple of different things. Um, you know, we looked at deep medicine, uh, which ended up being uh, or deep health, I think. Uh, you know, playing with this deep learning uh, idea way back when. Um, but, you know, for us, closed loop was this idea of not only predicting the future, but actually demonstrating whether or not you were able to change it, right? The closed loop and closed loop is all about, hey, I said something bad was going to happen, or I predicted some future event, or I said somebody was going to no show for an appointment. Then you're going to do something different. Whenever you make a prediction, the whole idea is you spot something in the future that you either want to happen or you don't want to happen, and then you make a new decision uh, based on that insight or prediction. And so the closed loop and closed loop is all about, hey, I made a different, I, I took a different course of action based on that prediction. Did I actually impact the outcome? And so that's a whole different branch of what we do, which is not just about prediction, but about outcomes evaluation. 
um, which is traditionally thought of as like an actuarial science. Um, but that's another kind of uh, aspect of what we do here at Closed Loop, not just prediction, but outcomes evaluation. Yeah, the concept of closing loop in healthcare, I think, is a very good one. If you speak to a physician and they make a lot of referrals, you know, you can then try to say, well, you're referring me here. Like, what's their success rate or what have you seen? And they, a lot of times they don't know and because they yeah. didn't actually get the feedback. Part of it, it also wasn't analyzed and presented in the right way, but they send things out and they just don't know. And I even remember, um, you know, back in the day, you go and get lab tests and they say, well, we'll let you know if there's a problem. You know, but they don't let you know. But then if I, if I, if I didn't get the postcard, is it because they didn't send it or why? You know, so this sort of lack of closing the loop is one of the things that holds healthcare back, uh, even at a broader level than what you're doing. So I like the name. So you get your history. You're getting, you're getting better uh, on that one. Now, going back. Well, the key to is you, you've got to get, you got to get somebody else to weigh in. So Dave and I uh, bounced a few ideas off of our wives and, uh, and they, they zeroed in on closed loop and helped us make the right call. No, that sounds uh, that sounds like the way to go. You know, you mentioned um, that when you were looking uh, more recently and talking about machine learning, you realized that back even at I2, that's what you were doing, even if you didn't call it that. And we're talking now about, you know, predictive modeling. And predictive modeling is something that's been talked about in healthcare for a long time. Um, and it was absent AI and machine learning. And I think it was actually because it wasn't using those techniques. It was using more basic techniques in, in the past. But when I hear about predictive modeling, I mean, that is something I've heard about being used in healthcare around, um, you know, in the 90s. So what's, what's different about what you're doing now and what you're still calling predictive modeling compared to maybe what has been done in the past? Yeah, you know, I, I love the way you framed the question, David, because at the end of the day, you know, especially if you back up four years ago or so, uh, there were a lot of debates. Every time I would go to a conference, every time people would get up to speak about this, the first thing that they would talk about is what's the difference between artificial intelligence and machine learning? And they would draw these Venn diagrams and AI is this and ML is this. And, you know, I would get this question as a speaker often, and I'd let everybody else in the panel speak. And then they'd ask me, Andrew, what's the difference between AI and ML? And I would say, no one cares. Um, at the end of the day, these are marketing terms, whether as technologists, we like that or not. AI, machine learning, these have all been adapted as marketing terms. Um, so when I think about what's different now versus, you know, 10, 20 years ago, it's just better math. Um, at the end of the day, what we're able to do today that we couldn't do uh, 20 years ago is use more variables, use more data points, uh, synthesize those variables together in different combinations. The math has gotten better. The techniques have gotten better at taking all of the available data for a given organization and using it to make the best possible prediction for a given outcome. You know, in the old days, what you would say is, well, we've got this rules of thumb based approach. It uses these 30 variables and we weight these variables in these combinations and we come up with a, a risk score. Um, today, what we're able to do is say, hey, let's look at the unique footprint of data that a given organization has. If I'm a payer, I'm going to be anchored in medical claims, prescription claims. Maybe I'll have an ADT feed, um, you know, mission discharge and transfer. Maybe I'll have some social determinants of health data. But if I'm on the provider side as an ACO, I might be anchored in EMR data plus labs data. I've got the same question. Who's going to be readmitted? Who's going to have an avoidable hospitalization, et cetera? But I'm working with different data assets. And so what machine learning allows us to do is build bespoke predictive models based on all the available information and signal available to a given organization to make the best possible prediction, the most accurate, most explainable, most actionable prediction uh, for a given organization. So that's really what's changed is this ability to kind of leverage all the data that an organization has rather than kind of uh, looking for just a handful of variables. 
Now, how about the data sets themselves? Uh, a lot of what you're describing claims ADT, the structure of those hasn't changed that much, although there actually has been some change, at least on the claims uh, side. Are the data, is the quality of the data better now that it, uh, people realize what it's being used for and it's being collected in different ways? Are the data sets different or is it most of the difference in improvement, you know, based on the math and then also the, perhaps the change so that you've got value-based care and people actually have a reason to act on it? Yeah, so there's a couple of big trends going on here, but you know, this goes back to your question of what's different about machine learning. So, you know, there's this idea in healthcare, particularly a few years ago, I hear about it less that, you know, oh, our data is too messy. The first thing we have to do, our data in healthcare is so messy and you don't understand, and, and we've got to clean up the data before we can do anything with AI and machine learning. Um, it turns out machine learning is really good at handling messy data. Um, the the idea that I've somehow got to get everybody perfectly coded, I've got to get everybody perfectly classified before I can then use AI or machine learning, it's just false. And so if you take an, a, a simple example, um, I might have a patient who isn't coded as diabetic. So I look at their claims data, I look at their EMR data, and, and maybe somehow I'm missing that diabetic uh, diagnosis code. And yet I see a prescription for insulin. Machine learning is really good at figuring out that most people who have prescriptions for insulin are probably diabetic. And so it's going to treat those two patients very similarly, regardless of that missing data. And so when you have a rules-based approach that says, if I have a diagnosis code for diabetes, you're gonna, your answer to that is going to be no, right? But when you're able to take in more data feeds, uh, you can make up for that missing or incomplete data. So you know, the other thing that we're seeing is the push towards interoperability and the policy changes that, that CMS has enacted, you know, about shout share data um, has really made a big difference. We're seeing a lot more utility uh, in the data feeds that are available. And, you know, I, I, I'm very excited as well to see what CMS is doing in terms of making their data more timely. So if you look at kind of the traditional 90 day claims lag, oh, you know, claims data has got a lot of information, but it's so delayed. Um, you know, with new uh, movements from CMS with things like the BCDA data feed, uh, you can get that down to as little as 14 days. And with their pre-adjudicated claims feeds, they're not perfect, but you can get that down to as, as little as four days. So you're seeing this, you know, not only are we getting more data, but we're getting it faster. And that really uh, is very powerful when it comes to kind of making better decisions and surfacing insights. So you have more data, you can have it faster, you can have it cheaper from the standpoint of just interoperability. And then also, if some of the things that were being done before, which used to call data cleaning, can be just skipped because you can do it with machine learning, you know, that's improved. And I think the machine learning can go beyond what you're describing as your, your simple example with the insulin and the diabetic to find, for example, patients who had certain tests or certain symptoms. And even if they weren't officially diagnosed, there's probably a, a likelihood that they may they may have something. And then I think the business model side of it, you know, it's all going together. All right. So now it's a no brainer that you went into healthcare. What about this question about funding the organization? You said you'd had success on a bootstrapped one and then you did a venture backed one. I think you raised money for closed loop as, as well, but what, what have you learned? What did you learn and how did you apply that to your fund financing decisions for closed loop? Yeah, sure. You know, it was funny. The first companies you mentioned bootstrapped um, second company, I thought, well, geez, you know, I've got this company that was Inc. 500, you know, number 16, and I've sold a company. And so I'm just going to go out to Sand Hill Road and they'll throw money at me. Yeah. Um, boy, did I have a wide, you know, rude awakening. Uh, I got 60 no's. That's six zero no's before I got one yes uh, when I raised money for Boxer. Um, you know, fortunately for closed loop, having two wins under your belt is a little bit different than having one. 
Yeah. Um, so the, the early funding gets a little easier um, when you've had a couple successes. Um, but everybody's on a level playing field once you get past that early funding. Uh, yeah. And so you know, it really comes down to metrics and kind of uh, adoption. So for us, you know, going from that seed round to an A round and then to a B round uh, was all about market traction. Um, and, you know, for us, kind of the two uh, big kind of points uh, were winning the CMS AI Health Outcomes Challenge. That really put us on the map, uh, you know, beating out the likes of IBM, Accenture, Deloitte, Merck, Mayo Clinic uh, in a head-to-head contest. Um, that put us on the map for a lot of folks. And then, you know, analyst reports. Uh, so folks like Class who cover these categories uh, and talk to your customers. Um, and so, you know, I think that's where we've been fortunate in being able to raise some of these other rounds. Obviously, AI is a hot sector. Uh, yeah. So, you know, we've been fortunate in having folks who kind of believe in the vision. Who is the customer? Yeah. So for us, you know, we have two types of customers, those who have data science teams and those who don't. Uh, for those that have data science teams, uh, we provide a platform for them to build, deploy, monitor predictive models better, faster, cheaper. So that might be the chief data officer at a payer, uh, you know, think of like a mid-tier blue uh, uh, on the payer side. Um, and then we have customers who don't have data science teams. So in the ACO market, you've got uh, folks that are building new teams, rapidly growing, um, and they might use our platform plus our bench of data scientists as kind of a fractional FTE, a fractional uh, part of their team. Um, to build some of these same predictive modeling use cases, uh, as well as some of that outcomes research or actuarial work that we do as well. So, you know, sometimes a technical buyer, sometimes a VP of pop health or a VP of quality, uh, chief medical information officer. Uh, but our big two segments are kind of payers, value-based providers. Uh, and then now some of, some of the folks in the traditional kind of fee-for-service hospital world are waking up from that COVID coma uh, and are starting to make investments in this area as well. You know, what you mentioned up front was that you've got some organizations that are that are new and ready to try something different. You know, you're sort of getting ahead of one question that I had, which is that these healthcare organizations are tend to be fairly overwhelmed and not necessarily uh, cynical, but kind of battle hardened. And, you know, there's just so much coming in that they have even trouble uh, assessing it or doing anything with it. How is it that you get these if I'm right, that, you know, a lot of overwhelmed healthcare organizations out there, how do you get them to try something that's new? Yeah, you know, again, when we started, it was all about finding the people who had a little bit of a different mentality. So if you look at kind of value-based care, by definition, these were people who were kind of starting with a different business model. And they had the, the very acute pain point, which was, I'm, I'm going to make investments in proactive care. I need to make sure that proactive care is going to the people who actually need it. So I've got to be able to predict the future if I want to be able to change it. So, it, you know, a lot of this is about picking the right people first, the right customers first. Then once you've demonstrated success, it's not that big of a jump. When people see, gosh, you're having success with One Medical or Iora, uh, you know, you're having success with Palm Beach ACO, the number one MSSP ACO in the country. You're having success with Southwestern Health Resources, number one next gen ACO in the country. When they see that success, then others who might not be the first adopters start to say, gosh, you know, maybe this is something that makes sense for me as well. Um, and so, you know, for us, it was about going from value-based care to payers and now, um, you know, back to the traditional hospitals. Um, but, you know, I think part of this is also you, you can't come at this with like a shiny object and like, let's, you, you don't want to be a hammer looking for a nail. Yeah. Um, and so for us, our first question, you know, is always, Let's assume I can predict the future. What are you going to do different based on that prediction, right? And how is that going to drive your bottom line? 
right? Whether that's improved outcomes or whether that's financial outcomes, but we've got to have a tangible ROI associated with whatever use case you're, you're interested in because otherwise this, this program is going to get shut down for all of us. Um, and so whether that's quality and safety um, or, you know, population health, you've got to really find those tangible ROI opportunities uh, in order to kind of uh, get past the, the, uh, the hurdles that you mentioned. So Andrew, where does the company go from here? Yeah, you know, for us, the, the thing we're really excited about right now, um, you know, it's not just about kind of, again, as we talked about predicting the future or machine learning and AI, um, what we're really excited about is closing the loop uh, and being able to not only target these programs, the proactive care, but help organizations demonstrate that they are actually bending the cost curve, that they're actually improving outcomes. You know, when you look at particularly in this pop health space, um, which, you know, we've kind of focused on that today, but there are use cases in risk adjustment and, and uh, prior authorizations, lots of other opportunities. But at the end of the day, if you're going to do something different based on that insight, that AI prediction, you've got to know whether or not the action you took actually had the, the intended outcome. Uh, and so that's all about this outcomes research. That's all about what we call evaluate, which is program evaluations that really, in a statistically sound way, tell you, is your chronic care management program working? Is your transitions of care program working, et cetera? Um, because otherwise, you're just looking at it and saying, well, we did better than we did last year. So I hope our program's working. Um, but doing that in a statistically rigorous way through program evaluations and, and actuarial science um, is what we're really excited about, closing that loop. Great. Well, my last question for you is about whether you've had a chance to read any books and recently, if there's anything that you would recommend or if you recommend anything that people avoid. Yeah, sure. Gosh, a, a few that come to mind, um, obviously, in the, the space for folks who are interested in AI and chat GPT and large language models. Um, great book, The AI Revolution, uh, GPT at Four and Beyond. Uh, Peter Lee had a research from Microsoft, uh, maybe only a couple months old. Um, I'm reading right now The Song of the Cell uh, by uh, Siddhartha. I'm going to butcher the, the last name, Mukherjee. Uh, and then another uh, recent one in the AI and ML uh, space is A Thousand Brains by Jeff Hawkins. Um, so those are a few favorites. And, and maybe one more, uh, my daughter's favorite was uh, The Stranger in the Lifeboat by Mitch Album. Uh, so if you want to break from some of these, uh, these deeper reads, yeah. uh, that's a great one as well. I get a good mix of those, you know, it's usually adult ones and people with younger kids have, you know, they say, I'm reading this one, but this is actually the one that's probably the most profound and have the biggest impact. Stranger well, in the Lifeboat was uh, was a good one to have a, a few dinner chats about afterwards. So a uh, good quick read. Sounds good. Well, Andrew, I, CEO and co-founder of Closed Loop, uh, your mother may have uh, found you to be difficult as a kid, but I'm sure she would have predicted as well that you were definitely going to college and that you're going to then do something big and good, which you have. Thanks for joining me today as a guest on the Health Biz Podcast. Thanks so much, David. Great talking to you. You've been listening to the Health Biz Podcast with me, David Williams, president of Health Business Group. I conduct in-depth interviews with leaders in healthcare business and policy. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe on your favorite service. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe on your second and third favorite services as well. There's more good stuff to come, and you won't want to miss an episode. If your organization is seeking strategy consulting services in healthcare, check out our website, healthbusinessgroup.com.